This is episode 40 of the Immunology Podcast, Bacterial Pathogens with Drs. Kristen Patrick and Robert Watson. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Drs. Kristen Patrick and Robert Watson from Texas A&M University on the podcast here to talk about their research investigating the interface between intracellular bacterial pathogens and the innate immune cells that sense and respond to them. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... You know, Jason, performing multiple rounds of cell isolations can be inefficient sometimes. Thankfully, you can use the new EC250 ECCEP magnet where you can scale up your cell isolation and process large volume samples like leukopaks and whole blood, all in a single round of separation. You can obtain highly purified cells from samples up to 225 mils in a single step. Learn more at www.stemcell.com forward slash EC250 magnet. That's awesome, Brenda. I bet you could go outside and see the daylight sometimes if you used one of these. <laughs> I know, right? I have to say, I've never done, like, I've always did the whole, like, you know, uh, FICO isolation for PBMCs. I should really, I should really check one of these magnets uh, in my, in my future, in my future life, because it must be kind of nice to just do it directly from blood. I remember my first FICO, I only had like two mils of mouse blood total, and like, I couldn't see anything. Oh, no, well, that's, yeah. I mean, the, the big FICO, like a 50 ml Buffico that you get from the blood donation center is very satisfying. It's a very thick, nice layer, easy to pick up. And it's like, yes, I definitely have cells here. Oh, yeah. I've seen some buffy coats in patients who had triglycerides in the thousands that are a little frothy. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. Well, human serum, I mean, compared to mouse serum, I remember it's quite, quite fatty. Yeah. Yeah. Especially yeah. Uh, with our diets these days. Mm, must be that, yeah. But you know what? I, I bet Neanderthals, they 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 probably didn't have fatty uh, diets. I Did might... you see that the Nobel Prize was on the Neanderthal genetics in medicine? What a beautiful segue! <laughs> I yes, had indeed. to do it. <laughs> indeed, um, it's funny because I will be talking about some old DNA today. Um, not near than that old, but pretty old. So I think it's very appropriate. Uh, so very much congrats. That was for. Physiology or medicine or medicine. chemistry? I forgot. Physiology okay. and medicine. You're, you're right on both accounts because it's both words. I was both words. I always thought it was physiology or medicine. No, it's physiology oh of medicine. Okay. There, I, think, I do think there should be a Nobel Prize for like biology. Why does it have to be medicine? Go ask the people who set this up a long time ago. So why does your... Do you, do you, I assume you already had had uh, a DNA test. How much percent Neanderthal are you? I have not had a DNA test because I know what they do with that data, and I uh, shared it with the larger world. I've only had partial sequencing for uh, genes of uh, Jewish concern. Jewish people have a certain number of genes that are more common among Ashkenazis that can lead oh. to disease when you're homo that are autosomal that are autosomal recessive. And so I got screened, and since I didn't have any, then my wife did not have to get screened because I was zero for whatever okay i got it. i thought it was like no. some kind of pedigree thing it's like well no. you know this is <laughs> nowadays nope. you know all this matchmaking got very complex no 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 this was you know like tay sachs <laughs> okay. it was fun things fun yeah. all right all right very nice 
Well, so anyway, I know we got papers here. Do you want to start with some some ancient DNA and just get that one out of the way? Yeah, you know what? I do. I, I think I've, this is a very recent paper. Actually, it just came on this 19th of October. Um, and I thought it was very intriguing, very cool. So this is, uh, the paper is called Evolution of Immune Genes is Associated with the Black Death. That's a very interesting uh, name. And the paper basically looks into DNA that came from uh, skeletons recovered from, from cemeteries uh, right bef like before, kind of during and after one of the larger, ep larger uh, episodes of bubonic plague in uh, Europe and Asia. So... There was this this the black what is kind of known as the Black Death, which uh, would happen around between 1346 and 1350, according to the I guess that's kind of these these years in which uh, bubonic plague really um, disseminated European and um, probably also Middle Eastern uh, Northern African populations. Uh, people say up to like up to half of, of, of people died or like a, at least a third. I think a third is a less controversial uh, number. And I mean, imagine living there it must have been, oh my God. I, I, when I think about it, I just, just kind of, just kind of like my, my, my hairs get a little bit, uh, the hairs in my neck get a little bit um, tense. So for this research, uh, they got a, uh, material from 206 Asian DNA extracts from from people buried in uh, cemeteries in London and around Denmark. Um, and in the case of the London cemeteries, there were very specific dates, so they could really kind of uh, date this this uh, DNA from either like before the Black Death. Uh, there was one cemetery that was mostly occupied by uh, victims of the Black Death, and then there were uh, posterior um, uh, things that were uh, people that were buried after uh, several years after the the fact, and they looked into several loci. Uh, either they had some um, loci that were uh, immunologic uh, associated with immunological like uh, genes. They were had some loci that had been already associated with different disease or immune related. Uh, conditions and they had some low side that they kind of had like as a control they were not expecting uh, major variation and so they did a lot of kind of analysis of this kind of uh, um, they 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 compare the the prevalence of this different uh, uh, different um, isoforms of this of the different low side between this different variants of this low side between the the different uh, material that obtained, and basically they got a couple of uh, loci, a couple of of, of uh, alleles that were variants that were kind of represented preferentially in in one of the groups. And I think the most interesting, the one they had kind of the highest signal from, was this it was a, a loci that was uh, near a, a gene called ERAP two. And so they had a variant that was very uh, was associated to a different alternative splicing of this gene, and they see that it is there's two variants of this gene 
and one of them is associated is, is much more expressed um is after uh, the, the 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 black death so as associated with kind of survive survival to the black death uh, i just need to maybe mention that they kind of really tried to find people that were descendants of people that survived the black death in contrast to people that maybe uh immigrated from other places after the fact so they do think that this kind of this this uh different variant is uh evidence of a selective advantage that is stemming from this variant and interestingly so this uh, ERP2 um is a um aminopeptidase that is associated to to present to trimming peptides for presentation to T cells by MHC class one molecules, and in in their in their um, in the way they present it, they think that this uh, particular um, variant that is associated with kind of high mort higher mortality results in a splice variant that has a premature stop codon, which results in kind of the loss of this protein. And then the loss of this protein prevents presentation by macrophages, we are, which are preferentially infected by Justinia uh, pestis, to be kind of targeted by CD8 cells. And then this allows the, the, the Justinia to infect the macrophages, uh, to be taken to the lymph nodes, and to kind of start replicating it uncontrollably because we do know that lymph node infection is uh, very swollen lymph nodes and lymph node infection is very uh, typical of bubonic plague. So it was very interesting because they, they get to this through looking at this uh, variant and how they, they uh, are represented in different populations. Um, they do some experiments because they find that these different variants are still present in, in modern people. And so they get their hands on PVMCs derived from 10 individuals, five of which are homozygous for the selectively favored uh, allele. And six and five people that are homozygous for the alternative allele, and they also see differences in the virulence, kind of in the in the in the um, in how these uh, cells kind of respond to to infection by Justinia, Jersinia pestis. Um, so I thought it was very interesting. So they, I thought it was very interesting uh, that how they got to this. Uh, and I think what's also very also very cool is that this uh, this variant, this ERAP2 variant, is also apparently has been associated as a risk factor for Crohn's disease. So it kind of gives you this idea of the trade-off between sometimes having a more um, capable immune system uh, and immune uh, autoimmunity and kind of being predisposed for autoimmunity. Uh, so I thought that's also very interesting and um, so pretty cool, in my opinion. It's interesting how often macrophage uptake of pathogens, which is what they're supposed to do, and then chew it up, is actually the yeah. nidus of infection. Right? Like, it gets hijacked all the time. Yeah. What is wrong with macrophages? Like, come on, guys. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about an intracellular pathogen. Segway. Beautiful. Um, tuberculosis. Okay. The big daddy of all intracellular pathogens. I mean, another pathogen that hijacks macrophages, no? Yeah, it is. 
So this is a bacterial phospholipid phosphatase inhibits host pyroptosis by hijacking ubiquitin. It is in Science. First author is Kui Yao Chai. Uh, last author is Kui Hu Liu. Um, and it came out October 14th. So, um, as we're going to hear later on this uh, podcast, I'm a big fan of gas dermin D as a molecule. This is a protein that forms pores in the membrane and causes a cell death known as pyroposis that's inflammasome mediated. It gets cleaved by caspase one to then form pores. Uh, these pores release a bunch of cytokines and the cell dies. Um, so it's an inflammatory mediated cell death and it's super important and critical. And it, it, it targets the membrane by the phospholipids present on the inner, inner leaf of the membrane. Um, they did a really sophisticated screen looking um, for proteins released that are in the tuberculosis genome that have eukaryotic-like motifs. And then they found one that was PTB, also known as RV0153C, very abundantly secreted during infection. And they found that it had a binding domain for phospholipids. And they found that it could target and dephosphorylate host plasma membrane PI4P, so phosphonositide and PI4-5P, PIP2, which then would prevent gas dermin from going to the membrane, making a pore, and letting the cell die. So, so they found this out here. So that was the first thing they found. Hey, this has a phosphatase. If you overexpress, if you knock it out, you get more gas dermin-mediated pyroposis. They found that it had phosphatase activity. They did all this mapping of that, right? But then the story doesn't stop there. That's what is so crazy. Uh, and so what they found was, is that during infection, different mutations had a different effect. And they found in the end that this thing gets ubiquinated. And it has some activity at baseline, but actually what is driving it, because they did all these things where they knocked it out or overexpressed it in a cell, and so you had the native host me mechanisms there. Um, they found that in vitro it wasn't working as a phosphatase. And then so they looked, like, so you're not getting phosphatase activity in vitro, which is a giant pain in the butt, right? Kind of ruining the paper. And then they found that it had a ubiquitin binding motif, and they really dived in. And they found that this protein actually is bound to ubiquitin and then they, they show through mutagenesis what the divine domain is but not ubiquitin like proteins and that ubiquitination opens up the active site for function to do its work and so what happens is this is a protein secreted by tb which inhibits the normal intracellular pathogen sensing response to lead to pyroposis if you get rid of it mice all the inflammatory markers everything they do better in the face of um, TB if you knock out this protein or the gene. And so you have an intracellular mechanism that's actually a eukaryotic phosphatase. And remember, TB doesn't have PIP, right? 
It's not part of how they signal. It's only a eukaryote thing. So I thought this was really cool. So they have it only in order to mess up with their host. Correct. Cool. But sorry, I what I I missed one thing. So pyroptosis, so pyroptosis is bad for MTV, right? Correct. It kills the cell, and then MTV, and then it's no longer an intracellular pathogen because it got thermonuked. And they actually see, interestingly, granulomas increase. Um, you have to have the inflammatory cascade for the granulomas, and so only granulomas are present in that. You get more granulomas in the absence if you knock if you turn off gas germin, knock mm -hmm. it out with TB. You get more granulomas. Mice die, but no granulomas because there's no inflammation, right? They don't. Because oh. part of pyroposis is that the pore releases the cytokine. And and so the ubiquitination does it not get degraded because of the ubiquitin? Eventually, presumably, they don't go into the degradation of it. Okay. Another way MTV is just messing with us forever. Yep. Nice. Well, an evil, an evil bacteria. Um, before I move on to my paper, I just want to say that I did not mention the authors of the paper I mentioned before. So I just want to give a, a big shout out to Jennifer Clunk and Taras uh, Bilgalis. Who are the first authors of the of this uh, paper uh, titled "Evolution of Immune Gen Genes Associated with Black Death" uh, from the labs of Hendrik Poiner at McMaster University in Ontario and Luis Barredo at the University of Chicago. So I just wanted to make sure credit is uh, properly um, given. And that being said, let me take you into a journey into structural biology. Are you ready? I love structural biology. I have to say, I, I appreciate structural biology. I'm not a connoisseur of it. So I, it did take me a little bit of um, kind of research, a little bit of a rabbit hole of cryo-EM to kind of understand this paper. Um, so the paper is called Structural Principles of B-Cell Antigen Receptor Assembly. Uh, I was by, uh, published in Nature, uh, 13th of October. First authors, Ying Dong and Xiong Pi, uh, from the labs of Hao Wu and Harvard uh, Medical School and Michael Reth at University of Freiburg in uh, Germany. And I think it caused, it, I th this is a very interesting paper because I would say maybe it's a non-structured biologist. It's not that easy to understand, but... Uh, it is very important because this is the first cryo kind of reported cryo -EM stru uh, structure, complete structure of a uh, B cell antigen receptor uh, published. Um, and if it hadn't been for a couple of papers that came only two months ago on uh, the structure, cryo -EM structure of the human uh, BC, uh, B cell antigen receptor, this would probably be the first one in general. So this is murine uh, BCR. And um, basically in this paper, I think it might be interesting to just uh, tell you a little bit of what I learned from cryoEM. How does, how does this work, right? I, I was not very familiar with it. So basically what they did is that they generated a slightly modified BC, uh, B cell receptor uh, to, in order to make it easier to properly isolate. So they have this 
Um, so every every B cell, so a, a kind of a naive receptor of a B cell is basically con consisting of uh, the heavy chains. In this case, if it's a naive B cell, it's going to be the IgGM, so the kind of the mu uh, heavy chains, uh, and two light chains, uh, and uh, an Ig, uh, so kind of an IgA and IgB. They are these, these transmembrane proteins that have that interact and have the actual signaling domains in their cytosolic tail, so these ITAMs, uh, and they are the ones doing the signaling. The idea is that upon antigen recognition, these motifs in the uh, Ig alpha and Ig, Ig beta uh, chains will be phosphorylated and then kind of will continue downstream signaling down this receptor. And so basically, the for this for this study, they generated an engineer BCR that had a kind of the the murine uh, Ig IgGM uh, heavy chain and um, a, a, a Ig alpha that was tagged on the one side with a flag uh, epitope and in the extracellular uh, side and on the intercellular side was flagged with a, was marked with a YFP to kind of make it easier to, to identify. And then was, it was together with the Ig beta uh, chain that was have, had this actual, the actual item attached, which also is pretty, pretty neat. Um, and they expressed this on a cell line and then they purified it through you know, a very difficult, very must be, it must have been a lot of optimization because these proteins, you need to generate them in a very, like, they have to be really good, really good quality. Must, you must retain the structure in order to, you know, load it for the cryo EM. And, you know, and as you, Jason, already know, but maybe I'll share it with our listeners. For cryo EM, you basically, you get your very highly pure uh, protein and then you place it on a, on a kind of a grid, right? And then these molecules, each of them kind of populates the grid and they, are, they find themselves in different orientation. And then you freeze them in, in, in place. And so you end up having kind of thousands of copies of, this, of the molecule which you are analyzing that is on the two-dimensional kind of uh, plane. They are located and you can see them in different uh, kind of um, uh, orientations. And then you can, if you take kind of cryo EM pictures of each of these, you take the density of the signal that you get from the electron microscope, and then this together, you kind of using, I would say, very advanced computations, you put them together to generate a 3D, a 3D uh, structure of your protein of interest. Um, and that's basically what they did. So uh, they, they, they used this, they had a data set of up to 400,000 particles, uh, and they used that to bring to life a 3D structure of the uh, uh, B-cell receptor. Uh, interestingly, they also used AlphaFold from, from, uh, to kind of generate an initial uh, model to make it easier to then kind of fit it to what they see from their, um, from their data. And I have to say that I did not think too much about the structure of the beta B-cell receptor before. And there's a lot of detail about how, uh, on the one hand, uh, they could not really look into the structure very well of the 
kind of the FAB uh, segment, which is the the last kind of the very extracellular domain, the last two um, IG domains are where the 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 the, 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 the short chain is is attached to because it's very it's very mobile that area because the hinge of the antibodies right before that. So that area moves a lot. Apparently that makes it hard to look with cryo-EM. So actually they ended up kind of taking that as from the crystal structure, which is designed to be very, very um, much easier to, to immobilize. And then they kind of attach that to the rest of the structure which actually they could very well see with cryo-EM. So uh, it seems to be quite a lot of steps necessary to generate this structure. And I guess that in general, this is a very important kind of um, kind of basic resource to understand uh, the structure because it was not very clear, especially how the, the heavy chain interacted with the uh, IG alpha and the IG beta, which are the ones that are doing the signaling. Interestingly enough, they show that Although the molecule, kind of the extracellular domain, uh, is very uh, is fairly um, symmetrical because it has like two heavy chains that are the same, and uh, once it starts kind of wrapping on itself and uh, going through the transmembrane domain, it becomes not so um, symmetrical, and then there's kind of a very specific uh, way in which this peptides kind of um, are, are, are threaded with each other in a way that it seems to be very important to the whole structure. And I think when it comes to the, uh, what seems to be a very, also very interesting observation is that there seems to be a confirmation of the resting DCR beta, uh, sorry, um, uh, B, uh, B cell receptor in which the item structure is kind of auto inhibited suggesting that there might be a conformational ch change that happens upon binding to the antigen that's actually involved in the activation of the TCR, for the BCR itself. Because apparently, so far, the main uh, mechanism was thought to be through kind of uh, mostly uh, clustering of many B uh, BCRs together, and then that the items kind of activate each other. But apparently the resting item is maybe not active on itself. So I think that might, if that proves to be to be true, that might be kind of a, a, a paradigm change in how we understand signaling through the BCR. So congratulations to the authors. This much has been a lot of work. Um, and also congratulations to the people that published the, the, the previous uh, papers uh, that were uh, they, those were published in Science uh, in August, uh, so they also I guess did a lot of work and they had similar results with the uh, with the human uh, uh, B cell receptor uh, give give or take some of the other homo the homology which is not perfect but the structure was also very similar in their hands. I'm just going to say that structure dictates function as a biochemist and leave it there. But yeah, I think it's really awesome because now you're learning the structure, which means you can really learn how it functions. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to do the last little bit here. Getting deep in the science. Next up, gut innervating nociceptors regulate the intestinal microbiota to promote tissue protection. It's in cell. First author is Wayne. Wen Zhang. Last author is David Artis. It came out 
October 27th. So after, after now, it's early press released, I guess. Uh, but you know how it works. Uh, time is a blur anyway. Come from the future, Jason. <laughs> it's what it says on the bottom of it. All right. So notice the exception, pain signaling, right? In inflammatory bowel disease, it's known to be, you know, painful, lots of People feel with their guts, right? There's, there's hypersensitivity syndromes, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. They want to understand how the microbiota relates to this. So there's a certain set of nociceptors called TRPV1 nociceptors, which kind of are generic nerve that innervates the gut for generic sensation. So unlike pain-specific or heat-specific, this is kind of a do-all. And what they find is that this receptor is critical in shaping the microbiota. Um, and so they find that if you knock it out and give them DSS colitis, the mice have worse colitis. And then they can abrogate this in different ways. They use DREDs, which are uh, designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. So these are GPCRs that are very specific for specific molecules that don't otherwise do anything that you could put in and they're G-coupled to like G-alpha-I or G-alpha-S or GQ to have the opposite effect of your regular receptor or the same effect. So you can turn it on and off in the same way and put it under the transcriptional control of the gene of interest so it shows up where you want it to show up. Um, actually, the person who invented this was Brian Roth, who was one of my uh, committee members back at UNC way back in the day. Um, so very, very familiar with dreads. Um, it's a big thing. So point being, they used a dread and showed that knocking it out was very similar to having a dread. They turned it off and then turning it on in the knockout removed the effect, right? Because if the dread's there, then it'll replace it. So they, they did this throughout the paper and showed that first the micro first that lack of this innervation led to worse outcomes. Okay. Um and you can also do pharmacological ablation because there's a chemical that if you over-signal, kills the nerve. So they, did, they showed this like three or four different ways. And our, you know, this, this chemical is RTX. Not surprising. It's a cell paper, right? So you're going to have 55 figures and eight ways of doing it because they, they fully interrogate this, which is actually nice. So there's not really much doubt left. Then they show that knocking this out uh, if you get rid of this and they chemically do it but then showed other ways too if you get rid of this you have decreased bacteroides and increased firmicutes species okay then they they know those are important for ibd in other papers and stuff that was really interesting they did fmts and showed that you could take a mouse with had this one of these knockouts, either genetic or chemically ablated or dreaded. You get this disruptive microbiota, you transplant it in a germ-free mouse, and they recapitulate the phenotype of worse disease. So then they're trying to figure out how this works, right? So they show that a few different ways. They did antibiotics ablation, showed that the microbiota responsible were vancomycin-sensitive, gram-positives, and they, they get it down to um, it being a specific broad clostridia disorder consortia that's doing this then it's not related to jackson mice versus taconic mice because taconic mice are known to have these extra filamentous bacteria it's not related to that it's a very specific it's not like 
it's not a couple of very common efecalum or bacteroides theothetomicron point being they did a couple specific cocktails as only a clostridium species broadly defined that did it they couldn't point it down to a specific bug but it was vancomycin pot you know sensitive clostridium then they were like well how the heck is this working so the other thing they notice is these this neural pathway releases a whole bunch of substance p and son of a gun substance p is altered in that the setting you lose substance p if you knock it out or ablate it or dread it down right all, all the ways and so they found then that the substance p from the neuron is actually what's driving the changes in the microbiota so if they put substance p in in the knockout that substance p signals and causes the microbiota to go back to, to be normal or not if you inhibit substance p you have the disrupted microbiota and it again transmits so what you have is this crazy cascade and i love this because most microbiome studies are not causative as we when we talked to one of our guests previously we we're talking about like there's this chicken and egg thing you co-evolved how do you know what's first in this case neuronal signaling through nociception drives substance p which shapes the microbiome in a way to be protective from intestinal injury and if you lose that you have a different microbiota that makes you more susceptible to intestinal injury and they go down, as I said, the whole pathway showing that it, this carries all the way down. I have a question. What exactly is substance P? Uh, it's an inflammatory, like basically a cytokine. Okay, that it's made by neurons. Right. Okay. And do they say how substance P interacts with the, microbi with the microbiome? Nope. Okay. They just but know that if they can give it and it, it recovers. Interesting. And these nociceptors, are they being triggered in any way? or is Well, just sure, by inflammation, they're normally going to get triggered. Okay. Right, so they pick, pick up a little bit of inflammation but there. But the point is you can take a regular mouse and just the knockout on its own has a disrupted microbiome. Because yeah. there's nociception all the time, right? You're sensing stuff. So it's not just pain. That's just an exacerbated state. But it's sensing things all the time. Their microbiome is altered at baseline, and that shift in microbiome, if you transfer it to a healthy mouse and then injure it, propagates the problem. Oh, okay. That part I missed. But, but you're also going to propagate more signaling by the nerves during injury. And substance P is known to abrogate inflammation generally and modulate it, but now this is really backlinking the whole thing. Man, the more, the more we think about it, <laughs> this whole gut uh, neuronal axis is... is terribly complicated yep it makes it all right fun. oh for sure for sure we're never gonna run out of papers like this to talk no about no we're not life. well we did cover gas dermin and we're going to be speaking to doctors Kristen patrick and robert watson at texas a&m in just a moment where we get even more into gas dermin and we and it, and it was and also mycobacteria one. so we yeah, got it all we do but before we get to that are you hungry, Brenda? Do you participate in the Immunology Journal Club and you wish there was better snacks? Yes. Stem Cell Technology is offering you an opportunity to win $300 worth of refreshments, also known as snacks, to fuel your journal club discussions. To get the best out of your science and your journal clubs, and to find out more and enter the sponsorship contest, visit stemcell.com slash journal club contest. 
We are talking today to Christian Patrick and Robert Watson. Uh, Dr. Patrick and Dr. Watson are um, assistant professor and associate professor at Texas A&M University. And very uh, interestingly, they, they have a joint lab in which they do all kinds of research, including um, RNA binding proteins, macrophage activation, mycobacterium, tuberculosis studies, and also some joint projects, which are very interesting. Uh, we are so happy to talk to them today. Uh, thank you very much for joining the Immunology Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Welcome on board. All right, I'm going to hop in first because you, you guys have a new paper out in Cell, and, and this is one of your joint projects, I think, that uh, talks about one of the molecules I got into in the last few years. I was a postdoc on uh, gas dermin D and necroptosis, which is different than pyroposis, which is different than apoptosis and all those because, um, you know, we can't stop naming things in science. So can you guys give us a high level overview on the story of mitochondria, gas dermin D and necroptosis, but also maybe the one sentence on what the heck gas dermin D is and not to be confused with A, B or C? So Gastermin D is a pore-forming protein. Um, it needs to be cleaved by caspases before it can be activated, so before it has that pore-forming ability. And it's typically studied in pyroptosis, as Jason said, where um, it forms holes in the membrane, and then that allows for release of cytokines like IL-1-beta and IL-18, and then also um, eventually allows swelling of the cell and, and lysis, um, leading to cell death. We found that um, gastrin D, in addition to making those pores in the plasma membrane, um, also makes pores in the mitochondria. And, and our work wasn't the first to show that, but it was the first to show that it led to a different type of cell death. And we really got interested in understanding how gastrin D was regulated in the context of actually tuberculosis infection. And TB, one of the cell death pathways that TB induces is pyroptosis. But in the actual literature, there's a bunch of um, genome-wide association studies that have shown that um, genes associated with mitochondrial homeostasis um, are require and uh, induce susceptibility in humans to tuberculosis and other kind of mycobacterial infections. So uh, taking it from the mitochondria, um, gastrin D, uh, we found forms pores in the mitochondria. And there's actually this kind of uh, gene involved in mitochondrial homeostasis called LARC2. And for unknown reasons, still unknown reasons, actually, LARC2 drives uh, increase in uh, mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, which increases uh, reactive oxygen species um, from the mitochondria um, due to overtaxation of the electron transport chain. And this combination of forming pores in the mitochondria along with these uh, this differences in mitochondrial homeostasis release um, abundance of ROS, and this ultimately causes a switch from gastrin D-mediated pyroptosis to uh, RIP kinase 1 and 3-mediated necroptosis. And so we actually have the localization of gastrin D dictates kind of the kinds of cell death that occurs in these macrophages. And how is how does this um, correlate to the infection itself is the is the mycobacteria somehow in, interfering or, or guiding this 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 balance between pyroptosis and necroptosis 
Yeah, so um, the, the kinds of cell death that go on during tuberculosis infection really dictate kinds of the disease outcomes. And right, so ge generically speaking, this kind of non-inflammatory cell death called apoptosis is associated with kind of protective responses, immune responses during TB infection. And these more inflammatory um, cell kinds of cell death, pyroptosis and necroptosis especially, are associated with very poor disease outcomes. And so a, a, a mouse harboring this one point mutation in the gene called LRK2, and this kinase called LRK2, um, which is a gain of function mutation, causes a the switch and increased necroptosis. And this inflammation, TB loves this kind of inflammation. Um, it, it, TB grows, and there's really severe pathogenesis of disease, um, increase of neutrophil flux, and severe inflammation. And so these mice succumb to infection really, very quickly. Um, it was just harboring one point mutation. So it's pretty striking. And I guess I'll add on to that, that this is not so far seemingly not unique to TB, right? We saw this increase in cell death um, using other pathogens um, like Listeria and Mycobacterium marinum. So uh, we kind of distilled it down to anything that activates the canonical inflammasome in the background of this kind of this sensitized oxidative stress environment um, could trigger this kind of refunctionalization of gastrin D from a plasma membrane pore former to a mitochondrial membrane pore former and push this necroptotic cell death. So, you know, while we focused on TB, we imagine and, and are sort of hoping that this will be relevant to other infections, right? And so we could potentially link this human mutation in LARC2 or just oxidative stress in general to these poor disease outcomes based on kind of uh, pushing this, this hyper-inflammatory type of cell death that um, is something that we've know, we know the pathway, but the idea that it could be triggered in this way um, was new and, and potentially important. I want to make a very kind of naive question. Um, what is, how, how is the best way of, of understanding the fact that if you have a pro-inflammatory, um, cell death, sometimes you expect, well, doesn't, it's not, that not activating the immune system and improving the immune response in a way, or because maybe I, I'm not a very much of an expert on mycobacteria uh, infections. So what exactly is the way in which mycobacteria harnesses this type of, of necroptosis to survive and to, or it's just that the, the inflammation itself is detrimental for the, for the host, which is of course terrible because if you're the host, that's you. Um, but what's the balance here? Um, that's a very good question. So that's something that um, is observed in, in mouse models of infection, of TB infection, and as well as humans. So if you can recruit kind of have this inflammatory cell death and you have like this influx of neutrophils, there seems to be a milieu that exists that TB loves to grow in, but that might be detrimental to other infections. So for instance, in this LARC2 mutation, um, this is unpublished work actually, but we know that during TB infection um, in the lungs, there's massive inflammation and TB, the bacterial replicates um, it really, really well. However, like in a other kind of models of infection, such as Listeria, this, this inflammation seems to be protective against more severe disease and dissemination, the kind of disseminated disease during at least a mouse model of infection. So um, for whatever reason, TB kind of loves this, uh, this kinds of inflammation. When you recruit excess of neutrophils, um, 
people have hypothesized that neutrophils may be a niche, which we can argue against that they're so short-lived that might not be the case. Um, they might be protective in a way and, and a milieu in a way that um, TB can grow extracellularly. Um, and so people don't quite understand, but anytime you get this influx of neutrophils and this inflammation, really it's been shown to TB likes it. And, and this is, a, is a, a detrimental thing for the host and a positive thing for the bacteria to grow. And this is the first time gastrimin's been implicated in necroptosis, you said? Yes. I'm going to ask this only because I have knowledge you would never have seen because it was never published. How important is phospholipid signaling in this cascade as far as you know? Oh, well, we're, we're laughing because, yeah, we're, we are barking up this tree, I guess. Um, so one of the major outstanding questions is why is the N-terminus of gastrimin D, the pore-forming portion, why is it localized to the mitochondria, right? Um, so there's a lot of cool hypotheses that that you could you can come up with right one is that um there's some kind of change to the structure of the mitochondrial outer membrane um, that makes it look more like the uh the plasma membrane or uh or exposes some other phospholipid that that um, gastrimin d can bind to um and we have some hypotheses about what Kind of that remodeling could be, but we do think it's it's driven by this oxidative stress. So we're now getting into this idea that that lipid oxidation um, and or the relocalization of certain phospholipids, perhaps from the inner inner mitochondrial membrane to the outer mitochondrial membrane, could be serving as a platform to recruit gastrimin D preferentially to the mitochondria. But yeah, lipid. I'm laughing because for a long time I was like, I hate lipids. I don't want to study lipids. <laughs> but you kind of don't get to pick what you study in biology if you follow if you follow <laughs> biology enough. You kind of have to do it all. So yes, we are. That's Jason. That's a really good point. We we think that that is an important player. So I'll share this on air simply because I don't think it'd be fair not to. Um, there's a family of proteins called the TIPE family, which is we can get into acronyms later. Um, they regulate phospholipid signaling and our intracellular transport of phospholipids. And if you knock out TIP0, the original one, gasdermin D is massively overexpressed and its localization seems to be screwed up. And then the cells are wildly resistant to necroptosis. Whoa. And none of that got published because I ended up having to leave my postdoc because my PI left the States um, before the paper came out. And it's just sitting on my hard drive. So, dear listeners, breaking news only on the Immunology Podcast, unpublished data from Jason. Nice. Well, it sounds um, like we're going to get a new uh, collaborator here. So we should talk. Um, <laughs> the other person that you might want to talk to is Igor Brodsky at Penn. He has really good C-tagged and N-terminal tagged gas dermins that we are doing localization with by flag protein. And we had that working before I managed we know Igor from our training. We all trained at Yale at the same time. Ah, so we, you're, <laughs> uh -huh. we can easily make that connection. connection. <laughs> Dr. When I was talking about when I was talking about like visiting, I actually we gave I gave a seminar there recently. So ah, there about. you go. I was gonna say I know he has the goods. I didn't know if you've uh, talked to him recently about his uh, pile of constructs. Yeah, he has a lot of good reagents uh, in that lab, man. All right. So now that we talked about what we're <laughs> gonna be talking about after we go off air. <laughs> so you guys 
are, are unique in that you have a joint lab and individual interests. So before we dive into that whole apparatus and working together and the inevitable lab meeting conversations where you disagree with each other in front of the grad student, how do you guys, you guys each have your own interests as well. So could you guys maybe take a turn to describe some of your own interests and then how you're able to, and then maybe after that we'll come into how you merge those and weave those together into a program. Well, yeah, I can start. So, so my PhD is in microbiology, um, but I ended up starting doing my PhD in a molecular RNA biology lab. I studied RNA interference in African trypanosomes, which are still the best pathogen in the world. And they're my favorites. But <laughs> um, I kind of got into RNA biology, frankly. Um, I was really driven by kind of these molecular mechanistic questions. So my training was all in RNA biology. And when Robbie and I, um, Rob will tell you his path, but when he got recruited to Texas A&M, we sort of decided to, to work together for many reasons, which we can go into. But there was a clear opportunity for me to transition my interest in RNA biology to understanding regulation of the immune response. Um, so that was a research program that I essentially created de novo when when we started here, um, you know, leveraging all of Rob's expertise and and reagents, and now taking uh, an RNA biology focused um, uh, an RNA uh, RNA binding protein specifically um, focus on you know how are post transcriptional steps in gene expression regulating um, innate immune outcomes, right? So we study signaling, we study transcription, we study transcription factors, we know all about NF-kappa-B and IRF3, but what happens after those transcripts like cytokines and chemokines? What happens after they're made? Are they processed differently in, in different scenarios? Is the timing of their processing important? Um, what are the RNA binding proteins that are mediating um, these essential processing steps? This was something that was really um, sort of a black hole in, in immunology because so much focus had been on the signaling and the transcription. Um, so I kind of I saw that that space and, and decided my lab could could fill that easily kind of by combining um, our lab's interests. So that's that's the niche where where we live in, in understanding how RNA binding proteins um, and RNA processing like pre-mRNA splicing, how these processes influence innate immune outcomes in macrophages. So I studied uh, tuberculosis as a postdoc, and actually it was in, um, I studied enteric pathogens during my PhD. So um, I kind of stayed in the bacterial pathogenesis world, although thinking about, you know, bacteria that cause diarrhea and a bacterium that causes a, a lifelong infection are a very different way of thinking. And of course, TB is a biosafety level three. So that was like another layer of of difficulty and difference between kind of bacterial pathogens. And so what YLAB really studies is kind of the interface between the innate immune system and TB, and that's kind of our driving force. And so, you know, TB is phagocytosed, and actually most, it's a kind of a first line of defense, usually these macrophages, and actually this is, um, it's evolved a variety of specific adaptations to kind of survive in this niche and replicate. And so we thought that, I thought that was really cool, and these interactions is, are kind of where we, we start thinking about, and then we go from there, basically. And so, you know, TB is kind of thought to be um, a vacular pathogen traditionally. That means it kind of resides in this 
sealed membrane compartment. Um, but we know now that it has a virulent secretion system, much like analogous to many other virulent secretion systems in gram-negative bacteria. And it actually creates holes in the, in, the, in the vacuolar membrane. And what this does is this allows this interface of virus factors to the macrophage. And so there are generally three consequences. Um, one is there's activation of a type 1 interferon response, which is at the transcriptional level. And so we do, that's kind of where we started with Kristen's lab also is we study the boring kind of signaling pathway act leading to activation of transcription factors. Kind of the second major pathway that um, we've uncovered at that interface is a selective autophagy. So a population of TB are ubiquinated with an eat me signal. Um, and this targets them for to autophagosomes and destruction in lysosomes. And the third consequence that we ignored up until this last story is um, access to the cytosol, uh, TB to the cytosol activates different kinds of cell death pathways, including the inflammasome. And so really TB, you know, nine times out of 10, you don't even know that you have it. And so these, these pathways over the course of, you know, co-evolution for a very long time are very balanced. And we're interested in factors that kind of disrupt this balance between these different pathways. And kind of, so that's where kind of our interests lie and my particular interests lie, kind of like studying um, regulation now of these pathways during infection. So we have trypanosomes and TB, which are different a little bit. Infections and intracellular or innate immunity, some level of intracellular stuff going on. Is that, and then that's where you guys combine um, together. Have you guys, so you guys are both the same institution, you run a joint lab. How does that work? So my wife and I are both scientists. We've talked about having a joint lab together but we definitely argue like an old married Jewish couple because that's what we are at this point. Um, but not old, like, come on. I know. Well, we've been, we've been together for 20 years because uh, we met the first week of undergrad. And so we've always oh. been like, ooh, we already know what happened when we ran a martial arts school together and had a dispute. I can only imagine like lab meeting. Um, so how do you guys make it work? And I say this because my wife, an undergrad was in the Fulton lab at Brandeis, which was ran by a couple at the time. And so we've seen it before and, and, and I've seen it in varieties, but it's tough. So tell us your secret to success. <laughs> well, I also, back in my trypanosome days, um, also worked with a, a couple at Yale, Chris Chudy and Elizabeth Ulu. And we called them mom and dad behind their back. And when, you know, mom was in a bad mood, we went and talked to dad and when dad was giving us a hard time, we went and talked to mom. And, you know, I think that as a student, as a trainee, having both those perspectives was actually really helpful. And having PIs that were good at different things um, really actually broadened my, my learning experience and, and learned different ways to, to manage some of these, um, some of the things you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, Robbie and I spend more time together than most couples. Um, our kids definitely know words like TBK1 and LARP2 because we talk about science all the time. Um, for the most part, we try to be pretty professional at work. And even if we were in the middle of an argument at home, you know, we kind of stop that and say, okay, I'm working on the AIMS page today. You're working on this today, right? And, and we just kind of get in work mode. 
Um, you know, our trainees might have a different perspective, but I think in general, um, I think in general, we don't argue too much, you know, having diff slightly different backgrounds, I think helps because there are definitely times where, you know, I'll defer to Robbie on something TB related and he'll defer to me on something transcriptional related. Right. So the fact that we sort of have our intellectual supremacy um, I think creates less stress as far as, you know, us butting heads scientifically. Um, so I think it works. What do you think, Rob? <laughs> I mean, I, of course I think it works. I think we, I mean, I think there are two kinds of people, ones that can work with their spouse and ones that can't. And I think um, I encounter people all that's like, what, what do you do? How does that work? I like, like there's 0% chance I can work with my spouse. And so <laughs> um, I am very fortunate in that we can. Um, we've had a lot of experience um, working together in general. Um, you know, we met in graduate school and Kristen's probably helped me more than I've helped her along the way, like um, on anywhere from giving talks at the, even in graduate school. And so we have a long history of, of informally collaborating, I would say, um, both at, at the PhD level. As a postdoc, we um, also did postdocs like in like there was one lab in between us and so we saw each other a lot and helped each other out along the way and so it was kind of a natural thing and Kristen's very good at like everything and I'm not I'm not very good at uh, several things that she's very good at and so <laughs> I am very reliant on her so for me it's easy I was like um otherwise I would be like not the near the scientist I am today without Kristen so I, I think that that reliance on on that also helps out. But we do argue. The other day we did argue in front of everybody um, at the beginning of lab meeting. I caught ourselves and I looked around. Everybody's just like staring at us. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> whoops. <laughs> How are they getting a divorce? Oh, no. Time to time when you can't help. The spill over. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I mean, Jason seems so skeptical about the idea. But, you know, I'm pretty sure. Uh, here uh, they're making it work so uh, kudos to that yeah now we've talked about having a biotech together now at some point versus a, a, an academic lab but it's still it, it you know work then comes home with you in a whole other way right it does I think that we are our kids are heavily involved in soccer and other things that we tend to talk about outside I mean certainly it doesn't ever leave us and especially with the advent of slack I would say that like it's a, it's a 24 hour, you know, a day mm -hmm. kind of thing, but um, we have enough going on outside like that. It's just rushing around and trying to survive. And so I think that also leads to helps us out a little bit, just like having other activities and trying to like take care of two children that are crazy. <laughs> but like at the same time, we outline Ames pages driving to travel soccer games, just so everyone like kind of sees where we're at. Like, yeah, that, uh, that is our life. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds um, efficient. Yeah, we're, we're, don't waste any time. Um, you know, I, one thing I will say that I think today I feel like there is a lot of, to be a good academic scientist these days, I think involves a lot of training. Um, and, you know, being a really good mentor to students, which is something that we're really passionate about. And I would say, I'm not sure I would have a ton of time for my students if I wasn't sharing some of the load. Right. And I, I think that, you know, this allows me to be a good scientist, be on study section, go to meetings, 
but not have my students, you know, be where, where's Kristen for three weeks, right? If they need a mentor, they can go to Robbie and, and get, you know, as good, if not better advice. So, you know, I, I think that this is something that we haven't, maybe hasn't been the model, but maybe mm-hmm. it should be. This is a hard job that requires a lot of work. And why wouldn't you want to share it with another equally, you know, intelligent, supportive set of hands, right? We definitely do more than two times the work, um, right. you know, together we can, you know, it, it's kind of, it synergizes and, and we become more productive. And, you know, at the same time, one of us is able to go get the kid with 101 fever, right? So mm. um, I think it's kind of a good model for, for academics in general. And I, I think it helps us be successful. I guess that you don't have to be married in, in, in the outside life. You can also just have this with a particular uh, Jason uh, coined the term uh, or use the term, uh, how was it? Work spouse? Um, that, that still seems like a smart uh, strategy to get someone that has your back and, and share this, the good and the bad with someone. And it's always, I don't know, sounds, sounds like a good plan. Yeah. There was a structural biology lab at Brandeis Biochemistry Lab called the Petsco Ringe Lab. It's two people not married had their own lives, but ran a joint lab together. And they were an example of a non-married science couple that did this. Um, So it's interesting. I'm wondering, do you guys think this is going to become more and more the norm in some way with like either dual PI labs, couple or not, but as we go forward, kind of with the the ever-shifting quicksand that is academic science these days? I do. And I kind of told this to you guys before, I I think that as I go around and tell how, how we go about doing things, people have like, oh, I like that model. And I think people are, are non-spouses, as you guys said, that are beginning to like, like this idea too. So I think it's become a more popular model. And I think it could be, I mean, you could do it almost like a married couple, or you could do it just like, maybe like not, not as intensely, I guess. I think there's like probably more degrees to how much you collaborate or whatever, right? But there is a lot of, it doesn't like, makes sense on a lot of levels not only i mean even at the laboratory level we're sharing you don't have to buy two sets of restriction enzymes i don't know if people use restrictions on them but like restriction enzymes <laughs> or you know you know western blot rigs or whatever like i think even like that it's, like, it's such a, a more efficient way of of running yeah. things on on many levels yeah and then also i mean that with the stresses on funding you know i, I think that we don't worry about that as much because we have two lines of of money, basically two money streams coming in the lab, right? So if someone goes through a gap, then the other one can kind of pick up. And you know, that's what so what my my postdoc, my my PhD advisors did that. And I, you know, I never was worried about any of that. But now I kind of I know the behind the scenes, like, oh, so and so like had a, a time where they didn't have their R01 and then the other one filled in. So, you know, I, I think that if we want to try, to try to create the most supportive, consistent training environment for young scientists that, you, you know, to try to put this all on one person and have mm. them be really supportive PIs, you know, that are at kind of the, the cutting edge of, of research, I think it's hard to do everything. And then forget like throwing in a family. I mean, not even sharing a family, like if you have your own family. Um, you know, all of these stresses are, as we all know, right, uh, we're coming to a breaking point. So I think the idea of being more collaborative in science, what does it matter if there's two names at the end of a paper with a star on it? Like, who cares? 
So, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of where we're at and we're hoping that, you know, institutions start to appreciate that and, and don't care where the stars are. For sure. That sounds like very inspiring. I have to say, I like that. I like that approach. So before we wrap up, we always ask a fun question. So the question is, if you could not be scientists, but had to have a joint career together, <laughs> so oh, it has wow. to be two in the box doing something else, <laughs> what would it be and why? You could have you, different you absolutely answers. absolutely can't. <laughs> an idea i i think we could run a restaurant together oh that was my idea <laughs> married couple <laughs> we're so boring well i think we both like food a lot and we've we've kind of uh all kinds of different food whether it's cheap food or and and traveling and and, eat, and eating different kinds of things so i think that was a natural place for my brain to go to and i think also there are some deep parallels between, you know, like chefs and and cooks and running a restaurant and the science and science or whatever. So I think um, for all of those reasons, I think there's enough division of labor where you could be good at different things in the context of a restaurant and, and running a restaurant. I think that it makes it would make sense, a lot of sense. So for all those reasons. Oh, totally. The parallels are very clear. Like Robbie would be the one coming up with crazy new recipes that would require outsourcing some very annoying individual <laughs> item. And then I would make like the classic tomato sauce that everyone liked, <laughs> but it would like always be good and <laughs> very consistent. So yeah. And that's kind of how our approach is designed too. But I think overall it'd be a great restaurant. You definitely want to eat there. <laughs> I, that's, I like the optimism. That sounds sounds like a good plan. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It was very interesting, and I really, really liked. I enjoyed very much hearing about your perspective, and and I do, I, I do share uh, your thoughts about the benefits of at least having uh, I don't know, another set of hands, uh, an extra head to think along with you. Um, and so, uh, because it's, it's a tricky job, right? Being a PI, it must be, I, I wouldn't know uh, just now, but it sounds like a very tricky job and it's good to know that you have someone to, to, to lean on. So congrats and I wish you a lot of success uh, in upcoming, um, upcoming research. Thank you for being on and sharing uh, the, this pathway. And then of course the restaurant option at the end <laughs> was a perfect cherry on top. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, folks. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com. Hang out with us on Twitter at Immunopodcast. Email us at info at immunologypodcast.com. Send us some guests. Smash the like button on your podcast. Subscribe. Give us a review. Do all those awesome things. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>